0: Aaron doesn't get to preach, and he doesn't know what to do with himself. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is Eric Gifruti, and I'm one of the elders here, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, Element Christian Church. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we do have Bibles in the back, and if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you, Uh, but you can certainly use one today and uh, follow along with us. We also have sermon notes on all of the communion tables, so if you want to follow along and take one of those with you, feel free to do that. So this morning, we are in Esther chapter 6, but I'd like to start in Proverbs 21, if you would all stand with me for the reading of God's word. Proverbs 21, verse 1, says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would Show us, Lord, how you work in our lives. And, Father, just the the awesome love and care that you have for your children. So this morning we lift up this message, we lift up our hearts, and we pray that we would hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, we are in Esther chapter 6. And as we've seen through the past several chapters uh, of Esther, things have steadily gotten worse for God's people. Haman manages to pass an irrevocable royal edict Throughout the Persian Empire that will destroy all of the Jewish people. And then Mordecai, he asked Esther to step <coughs> up and to seek deliverance for her people from the king. And even though she won the king's favor by appearing before him unsummoned and uh, she didn't die for it, so far she hasn't made much progress toward that goal. And now she's in the midst of this subtle plan where she's going to have two feasts and invite both Haman and the king to these two banquets. And so they've just finished the first feast, but it's still definitely not clear at this point whether or not she's actually going to be able to save her people from disaster. And as if this situation isn't dire enough, Esther is unaware that the clock is ticking for more than just God's people. As we saw last week, there's a separate clock that's counting down for Mordecai, a fact of which uh, Esther is totally oblivious at this point. The edict um, to kill the Jews that Haman issued, it still has several months to run its course. But Haman's plan to execute Mordecai only has a few hours before it's completed. The 75-foot gallows or the pole um, that that Mordecai would be impaled on has already been built by Haman. And he was seeking to ask the king for permission to actually kill Mordecai the very next morning. So even if Esther's subtle plan works to save her people, that salvation is probably going to be too late for mordecai so humanly speaking it seems like there's no way out there's really no hope left for mordecai but as we see in the scriptures we're never just humanly speaking even in a book like esther where god's name is never mentioned and his own people seem to somehow ignore his existence god refuses to be written out of the story here again we see that between the lines and behind the scenes and incognito that the Lord is working to accomplish his holy will. Esther chapter 6, it's actually a perfect case study in how God works all things together for the good of his people, for those whom he has called according to his purpose. So we're in chapter 6 in verse 1, and it says this, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So the king, after his intriguing banquet with Esther, he's unable to sleep. You know, maybe the king was curiously bothered that that Esther had invited Haman along with the king to both of these feasts. And maybe it was his jealousy that really was keeping him awake. Or maybe it was actually the construction noise of Haman's 75-foot spike that actually kept him awake. You know, that would be a fitting irony in a chapter filled with fitting ironies. And even so, even though that's the case, um, there's no reason given for the king's insomnia here there was no apparent reason for it, except God's sovereign plan to deliver his people. And we see that the sovereignty of God, it doesn't just stop with keeping the king awake. God is also directing the king's late night activities. And even though there was no late show or no late, late show, the king had no lack of potential entertainment at his disposal. He could eat, he could drink, he could watch light dancing girls. Oh, and remember his enormous harem? HE HAD ACTUALLY ALL KINDS OF PLEASURES AVAILABLE TO HIM. BUT WHAT DOES HE CHOOSE AS HIS LATE NIGHT ACTIVITY? WE SEE THAT HE CHOOSES TO HAVE THE GOVERNMENT RECORDS READ TO HIM, THE CHRONICLES OF HIS REIGN. THIS WOULD BE ABOUT AS ENTERTAINING AS READING INCOME TAX REGULATIONS. (laughs) I MEAN, MAYBE THAT WAS THE IDEA. FOR SURE, THESE WOULD PUT HIM TO SLEEP. THEY WOULD MAKE HIM SLEEPY. BUT THESE OFFICIAL TRANSCRIPTS OF THE PERSIAN KINGS RECORDED EVERY TRANSACTION OF THE COURT and they were used by the king to identify those who should be rewarded for loyal and faithful service to the throne. And it was important that the king publicly rewarded loyalty in order to promote his own safety. And in verse 2, we see that it was recorded that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate the king. So as these transcripts are read to the king, they just happen to be reading the part where Mordecai warns The king of this plan to kill him. And what's interesting here is that this event actually took place five years before. We can see that. You cross-reference chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 7. Why was the king reviewing records from an earlier period, five years before? Is this just another coincidence? I don't think so. Verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered what? I mean, the king, he's now jolted wide awake. Why was Mordecai overlooked? You know, no doubt Mordecai would have been disappointed by not having received the acknowledgement for saving the king's life. You know, have you ever felt that your hard work and, and your very best efforts were overlooked or not appreciated? You know, how do you react when you seemingly just get unnoticed or your your hard work just isn't seen and isn't acknowledged you know we often have to remind ourselves that we are who we are really working for so that we can faithfully do our very best mordecai's willingness to overlook this slight and continue faithfully serving the king it actually gives us insight into mordecai's character and as we see here god notices everything our faithfulness will will be rewarded in his time So the king, he's shocked and he's upset that nothing was done for Mordecai. Who would save his life the next time if there was no certainty of a reward? It's really a comical scene. You can almost picture the king jumping out of bed impulsively because everything that king did was impulsive. Stomping out of his bedroom just before the dawn with his servants trailing behind him. You know, this has to be fixed and it has to be fixed now. But here again, we see that the king is helpless really without his advisors. He needs somebody to tell him what to do, so he asked his servants, "Which of my counselors is here to tell me what to do?" And in verse four, the king said, "Who is in the court?" And now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. Now, as we've said before, the book of Esther is filled with irony. Vashti she risked her life appearing before the uh, she risked her life by not appearing or refusing to appear before the king when she was summoned. And Esther, she risked her life by going before the king unsummoned. We see here that Haman he cast the purr or the lot to determine when to annihilate the Jews. And the edict of death was made on the very evening of Passover, which commemorates God's deliverance from the Jews out of Egypt. Many other ironies exist in this book, but this is arguably the most ironic scene in the entire Bible. While Haman plots Mordecai's outrageous death, the king plans to um, honor Mordecai's faithful service. Now, normally at this time, there would be nobody in the courtyard, but God is providentially moving all of the pieces into place, and he places Haman there. And he just happens to be there at the right time when his king's advi- when the king's advisors are searching for one of his counselors. And in verse 5, it says, His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. And at this point, Haman's probably thinking to myself, This is my lucky day. You know, I've come to see the king about hanging Mordecai, and the king has just summoned me. Now I don't have to risk my life going before the king unsummoned. I'll be able to take care of business, and by the end of the day, I'll be able to enjoy the banquet with Esther and the king. Everything's going great. But Haman is about to find out this really wasn't a lucky moment at all, but rather it was a providential moment once again. And the providential God of the Jews has something different in mind for Haman than he expected. Verse 6, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? if there was ever a picture of pride going before the fall (laughs) haman is it but that's a whole nother sermon for a totally different day in another delicious irony here the king asks haman what should be done for the man the king delights to honor but the king leaves out a crucial piece of information here who exactly was it that was to be honored just like haman left out a crucial piece of information when He left out the identity of the people that he was going to destroy. Haman, being completely self-absorbed, he quickly fills in the blanks, thinking to himself, it says, who would the king possibly want to honor more than me? Now, this wasn't completely unfounded, considering how quickly he rose above all the other princes and all the other nobles to become second only to the king. He probably thought, you know, why couldn't the king tactfully ask me to name my own reward? That way I could ask for whatever I wanted without embarrassment. But what could Haman ask for that he didn't already have? Not a promotion, he was second only to the king. He knew what he wanted and he seizes this opportunity uh, to ask for whatever he wished of the king. So he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't show any of Esther's subtlety. He doesn't even pause and use the courteous and the customary phrases like, if it seems good to the king or if I found favor in the king's sight. He just plunges right in in verse 7 so he answered the king for the man the king delights to honor have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one with a royal crest placed on its head then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets proclaiming before him this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. For Haman, there was no other honor left than to partake of the king's very own power, prestige, and stature. All he wanted was to be treated like the king. Ancient historians actually have written that the Persian royal robes, along with the king's bed and the throne, were believed to have the power to almost magically impart the benefits of royalty. But regardless of that superstition, wearing the king's royal robes would impart incredible dignity and prestige with being so closely related to the king himself. It would be like those who get to ride on Air Force One. There's nothing magical, or there's really nothing special about it, but just being so closely related to the president elevates their power and their prestige in the public eye. And so Haman could see it clearly. His very own parade through the city streets of Susa, where everybody could see the extent of his honor. This was going to be his dream day. But all of a sudden, it starts to pour on his parade. Verse 10 Go at once, the king commanded. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Whoa. Can you imagine Haman's face when he finds out that it was Mordecai who the king intended to honor? Haman's, he, Haman ended his suggestion, his suggestion emphatically saying, this is what is done for the, the king, the man delight, for the man the king delights to honor. And the king says, yes, you go, you do it, do it now, do everything you suggested for Mordecai and don't leave out anything that you've recommended. What a crushing humiliation for him. To have the honors that he coveted so much bestowed on his prime enemy. And worst of all, he would be the one personally to proclaim Mordecai's honor. Irony upon irony. Verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. He led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Can you imagine? He proclaims this over and over again through the streets of Susa. Haman's own words have come back to haunt him. The phrase that just rolled so deliciously off his lips earlier, they must have tasted like ashes in his mouth by the end of a long day, shouting this in front of Mordecai. This is what is done for the man, the king delights to honor. This is what is done for the man, and the king delights to honor. Can you imagine at the end of the day, how was he saying that? Oh, this is what is done for the man, the king delights to honor. The whole scene is really comically ironic. Haman's dream day has turned into his worst nightmare. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and and that's how you say that, by the way, if you're Persian, (laughs) Zeresh, uh, and, and his friends, everything that happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin... You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. So after receiving the highest honor in the Persian Empire, what does Mordecai do? He actually goes back to work. He goes back to work. He seems totally unaffected by the day's events. I mean, honor is great and all, but it wouldn't get the job done for him. So we get this sense that he, it's almost really not a, a big deal. It's nothing special for Mordecai. But Haman, on the other hand, he's mortified. The tables have been turned, and the balance of power is actually starting to shift. And if you remember in chapter 4, after Haman issues the edict to annihilate the Jews, it was Mordecai who mourned and who covered his head and was dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And now we see Haman running home with his head covered, mourning. And does he find comfort when he gets home? No, absolutely not. I mean, you would think his wife and his friends would say, oh, we are so sorry for the crappy advice we gave you to kill Mordecai. That was the wrong thing to do. But instead, it seems that they suddenly saw the light here. It seems like now they suddenly have become the bearers of theological wisdom. Hey, Haman, Mordecai is a Jew, and nobody can stand against the God of the Jews when he decides to act. Well, Gee, they could have told him that before, right? So <laughs> you're on your way down. You don't stand a chance. You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. You know, it's so much easier to read the events after they've happened. But what's interesting here is we don't see any change in, Haman as, uh, in Haman's course as the result of this new insight. This could have been a Psalm 2 moment for Haman. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him this was the time to be wise this was the time to bow down and to submit to the lord and his anointed one before he himself would be destroyed but haman didn't have much time to reflect as we see in verse 14 while they were yet talking with him the, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Time was running out. The book of Esther is characterized by a literary term that's called peripety. Say it with me peripety. And that refers to a sudden turn of events in the story that actually reverses the intended or expected outcome. The deliverance of the Jews against all odds is a reversal of destiny. The conflict between the Jews of Persia and their enemy Haman, it isn't just resolved, but it's resolved through a series of reversals. And as we'll see later, instead of just stopping Haman's plans and keeping the status quo, there's a reversal of fortune here where the actions intended to harm the Jews actually result in the opposite. And instead of being destroyed, they are empowered. And here's a spoiler alert. The destroyer Haman doesn't just lose power, but he himself is destroyed. Chapter six, what we see here is actually the pivot point in the entire story of the book of Esther. And it contains the first of many reversals that will follow. And what we see here is that once again, the invisible hand of God changes the course of history. In spite of having all of the power of the Persian empire at his disposal, Haman's carefully laid plans were turned against him because of the king's sleepless night. We see that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions, there's this unseen, uncontrollable, powerful being at work that can't be explained nor thwarted. Now I know it's an oxymoron to say that we see God's invisible hand, but just like with other invisible objects, we can see their effects and the trails that they leave behind are unmistakable. We can look outside through a window and neither feel nor see the wind blowing, but when we see the trees bending, that tells us the whole story. So here in Esther chapter 6, God's work of providence is so clear that even the pagans understand what is happening. Haman's wife and his friends, they can't write off the events as mere coincidence. They realize that the God of the Jews is intervening and that there is now no doubt about the outcome. Haman is doomed. Have you ever experienced the invisible hand of God in your own life and so clearly that even non-believers could see it? Between the ages of 16 and 18, I had three cars and I had one street bike. I wrecked all three cars. And after getting three speeding tickets in less than two months, I decided it was time to get rid of the motorcycle and get something with a whole lot less horsepower. And all all of these incidents could be chalked up to basically youthful, uh, reckless driving, if you will. But I, soon after I became a believer, I was 18 years old, I got this green, 19, ni- 1979, green MG midget convertible. It was a tiny little car, but it was a whole lot of fun. Now, my driving had really mellowed out at this point because you know I wanted to really be a good witness for Christ, so I didn't want to, to be all crazy. Um, and I can remember one day, I was driving home from work. I used to work for a TV evangelist, actually. And uh, I was driving home from work, and I was crossing this busy street. And I honestly could not see any cars coming either way. So I start to cross the street. And as I do, all of a sudden, a car just totally creams me. And it just totaled my car. Fortunately, nobody got hurt. And, uh, you know, that in itself was a miracle, I think. But what I had come to find out afterward was that my parents never got that car insured. And so I can remember sitting in the living room with my stepfather and he's sweating and he's thinking, this is going to be the end of us financially. And all I can remember thinking to myself is, why did God allow this to happen? You know, God, you must have allowed this to happen for a reason. So I know that you're going to take care of it. And so I I told my stepdad, I said, I don't know why this happened. You know, I mean, I know it was my fault. I didn't see the car, but I know that God is going to take care of it. And He wasn't a believer. And so, you know, this really wasn't much comfort for him at this time. But you know, long story short, God did take care of it. Actually the insurance ended up covering it and we actually came out ahead financially during that whole time. And my stepdad had to come back to me later and he said, you know what, the man upstairs really must be looking after you after all. And they saw the invisible hand of God working in my life. And God works like that in so many of our lives. But what's ironic here in Esther is how quickly Haman's wife and friends gained this insight compared to how slowly God's people turned to him in their hour of need. We saw in chapter 4 there was plenty of mourning and fasting among the Jews when Haman's edict was announced. But there was very little calling out to God with faith in his promises. The pagans seemed quicker to believe in Israel's God than that, and that he would act more than his own people actually were what about us what about you and me today how quick are we to spot the hand of god working in our circumstances are we as quick as haman's wife and friends were or are we as slow to believe as god's own people were we should have an unshakable confidence that despite all appearances our god is faithful to save us from and to lead us through any circumstance or trial the unfortunate reality is that we often get thrown by life circumstances and those things that seem to be working against us. We see, in, we see here that, uh, that God, he did not forsake his covenant people. He did not forsake those that were exiled in Persia. And we know that God will not forsake his covenant with those who are in Christ, no matter what life can bring against us. The Apostle Paul put it like this, in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We need to trust that the invisible hand of God is working in every single circumstance that we will ever face. Another important point for us to see in this chapter is that the turning point, the actual peripety in this story begins with such an ordinary or insignificant event It wasn't Esther's decision to stand up for God that turned things around. Things actually got worse for God's people after that decision all the way through chapter 5. But from chapter 6 onward, their enemies were on the run and God's people were on the upswing, not because of their strong faith or their courageous action, but simply because of a sleepless night. Esther is completely absent from this chapter. And Mordecai, he's just a passive participant at this point. And in a way, as Mordecai suggested to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14, help is arising for the Jews from another place in such a way that there can be no mistake that their deliverance deliverance is entirely from God. You see, previously in Israel's history, God used mighty miracles to deliver his people and fulfill his promises. But here in Esther, we see God using the ordinary events of life, the king's sleepless night, the decisions of less than perfect people, to realize his promises for his people, God providentially directs the flow of human history through ordinary individuals and individual and human beings. I mean, what an awesome God we serve! So many believers get caught up thinking that if we don't see some quote-unquote miracle, or if, that God isn't then paying attention, or He's not involved in our circumstances. But God. God is so great and he's so powerful that he can work even without those quote-unquote miracles through the ordinary events of billions of people throughout the ages of time to accomplish his will and fulfill his promises to his people. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night, because a man wouldn't bow down to his superior, and because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How unfathomable are the ways of the Lord. In Job chapter 11, verse 7, it says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Think about God's providence in your own life. Isn't it true that God has worked in your own life through a series of events that were often unexpected and seemed insignificant at the time? For those of you that have believed and trusted in God's salvation through Jesus Christ, um, consider the chain of events that led to your faith in Christ. Maybe you were flipping through the channels or through the radio stations when you just happened to come across a, a preacher who had a message that began to transform your life. Or maybe it was a friend or a casual acquaintance that just happened to invite you to church or to a Bible study. That's what happened to me when I was 18. The most significant work of God in our lives often comes through a chain of events, each of which probably seems unimportant at the time. Think about how God has guided and directed your life. If you're married, how did you come to meet and marry your spouse? Or what are the circumstances um, that led up to your current job? god's care and god's protection for his children usually doesn't come by mighty miracles but through the constant and inevitable unfolding of circumstances each and every day as one thing leads to another it's the tiny miracles of god that directs our steps and as most of us already know not all of life's circumstances are pleasant they can be tragic they can be ugly i mean they can be destructive just like the plot to annihilate the Jews of Persia initiated on the eve of Passover. Serious illness, the death of loved ones, wayward children, broken relationships. These are all links in the chain of life. And while none of these is good in itself, even the worst or even in the worst of life circumstances, God is working to fulfill his promises as one thing leads to the next. The path to the joy that God promises. It may take us through the back roads of suffering and despair, but we can have the assurance that in all things God works for the good to those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. This passage in Esther should also serve as a serious warning for those who are not willing to bow their knee before God. Humanly speaking, once again, Haman's fall was not predictable. He seemed to have it all. He had fame, wealth, position, honor. But in the space of 24 hours, he was disgraced and he was dead as we'll see in the next chapter. And his wife and friends, they nailed it when they attributed his fall ultimately to attacking the Jews and opposing Israel, Israel's God. But what was scripturally predictable, well, this was scripturally predictable because what God had said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, He said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And as we saw a few weeks ago, Haman was descended from the Amalekites, whom God specifically cursed in Exodus 17, 16 for attacking the Israelites. So what wasn't predictable humanly could have been predictable scripturally. Is it possible that you and I are under a curse? You know, the scriptures are really very clear that anyone who breaks God's law even in the smallest detail, is under a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That means that if you and I are relying on our own goodness, we are really in big trouble, even if we think we're well above the average person. Nothing short of perfect obedience, offered from a perfect heart, meets God's standard. And all who fall short, which is all of us, are under a curse. And the outward marks of that curse, it may not, may not be evident in our lives yet. Maybe our business or our career is prospering. Maybe we're surrounded by people who care about us and respect our integrity. We might be enjoying the good life in every way, just as Haman was. Our whole life being built around serving and idolatry, feeding our own sense of what makes us feel honored in the sight of the world. But our fall could be just as sudden as Haman's. And it could take us from our present comforts to face a holy God in an instant. Are we ready for that? You and I, we should expect nothing but death. But for those who trust in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for our sins, they will see the ultimate peripety. They will see the ultimate reversal of expected ends, all because of some seemingly ordinary human events the birth of a baby in Bethlehem and the death of that man on a cross. The ordinary and the miraculous intersect in Jesus Christ. Because of his death and his resurrection, our destiny can be reversed from death to life against all expectation. The cross of Jesus Christ, that's the pivot point of the great reversal of history where our sorrow can be turned to joy. So let me ask you a question this morning. Who is the man that God, the great king, delights to honor? Who is it? Jesus. It's Jesus. On that day, on one day, Jesus, he will be at the head of a great victory parade. He'll lead his enemies behind him. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All of our knees will bow before him one day, whether we like it or not. Why wouldn't we bow before him now because of his great love that he has shown to us? In Christ, there's hope for even former Haman's, for those who were once his enemies, doomed like Haman to fall to destruction. We can now be adopted into his family through Christ. Amen? The band's going to come back up now. And this great reversal is only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. So every week, as we normally do, we come to communion to remember what he did for us. And as we take the cracker and we break it, we remember his body that was broken for us. And as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us. We're also going to worship God through prayer. There's going to be people, uh, elders or deacons in the back, as the band plays, to pray. If uh, you have anything that you want to pray for, maybe this morning you realize that you haven't bowed your knee to God. And you realize that it's no accident that you're actually here this morning. And that God has led you here for a reason. And today is your day. Go back there and pray with them. After the service, there will also be deacons and elders up here who are w- ready to pray for you and who want to pray for you. Uh, we're going to worship God today also through our giving. We have offering boxes on the sidewalls and in the very back. And we're going to worship God through our fellowship as we just Hang out afterwards in the back, get some coffee, talk to somebody, see how somebody's doing, get to know one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you are in control of every single detail, Lord, that nothing goes without your notice. And, Father, that you are providentially moving all of the pieces of our lives to accomplish your will. God, we thank you that you love us so much. And I pray for everybody in this room, Lord. I pray that, Father, as you're working in their lives, that they would recognize your invisible hand, that they would realize, Lord, that you're drawing them to yourself. Father, that they would come to you and seek your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy in our lives. We lift this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen.